0: I'm excited for us to jump into this new series. Uh, We'll have a pause next week as we talk about love and Valentine's Day, and we'll be jumping into this thing and riding it right up to Easter as I talk to you about what I want to call the comeback, the great comeback. As I was writing this series, and I know it would be safe because he posted this on his online post or on the one that I posted. I, I announced this, and underneath it is a dear friend of mine who was a pastor. And in his pastoring, he, he took too many prescription drugs and he became addicted and ended up losing everything. But you know what he did? He yielded to leadership. He yielded to people. And he underneath said, let me tell you the story of my comeback. And God is restoring him. You know what this pastor does every time he goes on any kind of medication like that? I call one of my elders and I call one of the pastors that's over me in the region and I tell them I'm about to go on this. Listen, as far as I'm concerned, I wanna avoid pain at all cost. So help me, doctor, if you're gonna carve me up, Tylenol and ibuprofen is not gonna do it, I just that's me. But I always let them know, when I start, when I finish, and I say, you have the right to, even if you don't believe me, to give me a drug test because, man, people, doctors, intelligent people, rich people, poor people. Uh, opioid addiction does not discriminate and we're never safe against it. So those things are a blessing, but they always need to be monitored. I asked my leaders over me when he was going through this challenge, I said, what do you? what can I do for him? I said that, what can I do for him? And he looked right back at me and he said, what you can do for him is this, anytime you go on a prescription drug, you call me and let me know. And then I follow up with you later to make sure that you're still on top and free and uh, that's a great discipline of accountability uh, to have in your life and he's on his way back He's having a comeback. His marriage, God saved his marriage, his kids, they love him. Their their his life and their marriage has never been better. Yes, it's different, but let me tell you what, whatever your difficulty is here this morning, whatever your challenge is, whatever your struggle it is, whatever it is that is a problem that no matter how much you try to have a life of joy, it interrupts you with sorrow. No matter mo- how much you have a moment of hope, it pops it like a balloon because Fear overtakes you, whatever it is, whether it's a convergence of things, a convergence of struggles, or one just gigantic Goliath coming against you. I want you to know something, that there is no such thing as defeat when it comes to Jesus Christ. And sometimes what God does is he uses difficulties to realign our heart so that we can make him again the champion of our heart, the love of our life. And God put Job through sorrows and difficulties. Difficulties God put David through difficulties. You could read all about those in the Psalms. Just because we love Jesus does not mean that we are not exempt from temptation, sorrows, suffering. But what God wants to do is for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. The Bible says it in Hebrews like this. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He will not fail you. He will help you come back. One of the one of the biggest blows that ever happened to this nation was in the 1920s during the Great Depression. Prior to the Great Depression in 1929, at the end of the month, prior to that, it was one of the most prosperous times in the United States. Can I just tell you something as a pastor? I'm watching our economy, and I'm watching our indebtedness, and I'm watching our spending and I'm watching our our frivolous multi-trillion dollar national debt and I'm saying, man, it just takes one bad day for everybody to pull that money out and we are back in the same place we were. Imagine. I just can't. But nobody would have thought that in the 20s. Check this out. In the 1920s, it was, man, it was dance. It was the age of the jazz band. People were celebrating. People were, were, were just off the hook. In fact, it's kind of neat to see different styles come back. Ladies with short hair, that's not a new thing. This is something that was totally back in this age. There was so much wealth it was like everybody became a millionaire and they put out a, a song called We're in the Money. We're in the money. You probably heard that before. But it was it was like the idea that it would ever be difficult. It would ever be bad. And they needed this boost because World War I was one of the most horrific wars ever to touch the face of the earth. Millions upon millions upon millions of people killed. And not only that, but not, not just around the world, but even in our own country. And afterwards, it was like the economy turned, hope returned. Everybody was, was celebrating, everybody was living large, people were investing in the stock market and it was like all it could do is go up, 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 up. And what's very neat about, what's really unique about this is that this is one part of my family's history that intersects with history. It was at this time that my grandfather was on the far left Charlie Conway, he came right over from Ireland. My, remember growing up, my grandfather talked like the Lucky Charms man. Everything was a story, right? The ice cream man came through town. Bring, bring, he had the bells ring, and we're like, ice cream. You know what? And my grandfather would be like, come here, I'll tell you a story, and I'll give you some ice cream money. And then he'd begin to tell me about how he followed a rainbow and a leprechaun, and then he'd give us money to go, and the ice cream man would be gone because he took so long. I heard a real funny thing last night, good things to tell your children to save you heartache. Tell your children whenever the ice cream man plays music, he's out of ice cream, that's what that means. (laughs) I thought that was hilarious, I just loved it, but it was just such a crazy time. My grandfather literally came over and initially he got, you had to have somebody that sponsored you, but he initially was roughing it, couch surfing, he even slept under the Brooklyn Bridge for a season, but he began to get a boost. He invested in a, a, a place called Manhattan Bar and Grill that's still around today, over right in Union City, Jersey. Literally, you go over the bridge, and you're right in Midtown Manhattan, you go over there, and that whole area was just loaded with boxers that were fighting in Madison Square Garden and all of these different things. And so, initially, I'm getting the impression that either it was... There was no bar because of the prohibition, or he was doing a speakeasy. I'm not quite sure because my grandfather's gone, I can't ask him anymore, but it was right during that time, and it was right in the middle of that time that the greatest crash in history happened to the stock market. In two hours, $10 billion disappeared. Let me put it in our perspective. In two hours, $145 billion was gone. Chaos, mayhem, investors committing suicide. You think that uh, boosting up and uh, putting, what do they call that when you put money into the economy? It was a a word, please forgive me, I'm drawing a blank, help me out here, stimulus. Stimulus is not a new thing. There were all kinds of brokers that said, we're gonna give hundreds of millions to stimulate. That, That was like spitting at a tsunami. You just couldn't do it. And literally, in moments, the greatest roar of American wealth in the history of our country for the longest time ended. And the New York Stock Exchange was empty and it would begin to continue to empty out lives of their homes, lives of their vehicles, lives of their families. People who once were driving around in financed cars no longer could afford it and they were selling it off for nothing just so that they could get rid of the burden of the payment before somebody could take it away or just so that they could get enough money to sell what they had so that they could feed their families men women families children that once had dignity now were going to soup kitchens and just praying that they didn't run out of soup so that they could eat that day this became so hard on the economy that children were significantly impoverished with the families as they could no longer afford the apartments, as they could no longer afford the mortgages, as they could no longer afford their homes. And so either as a family or as occasion, what would happen with a father, he would leave and begin to go into these little shacks that they called Hooverville, named after the president who was president at the time of the Great Depression, Herbert Hoover. They said, thanks a lot, Hoover, for giving us the Great Depression, and they named all of these places Hooverville. In fact, at this time, that's my grandfather on the left, for that season, he was out as well too, trying to make it. Just arrived from the difficulty of living in Ireland, arrives here, builds up a business, and this is, and loses it all in a minute, and now he's sleeping out in the open. And I remember growing up, he said this to us once, he said, he said, you know what? You pay your bills, you feed your family, You save as much as you can, and hopefully you have something left over. But you save, you save. And he said, you know what? Everybody had money and they were eating. It was a good time to have a restaurant. But the Great Depression hit and nobody could afford it. And that's the end of the story. That's it. These shacks, these houses started off in Central Park as one of the large ones with a couple of them until eventually they turned into whole, full-blown cities. This was one of the most devastating blows. And when I look at the New York Stock Exchange right now, we are in the longest run in its history. And that is propped up, and it's only valued as long as people have money in it, but if they pull money out of it, debts are called. Can I just say this to you as a pastor? I feel this in my heart don't overextend yourself, get out of debt, don't overextend yourself. I feel there's another crash coming, not a great depression and this isn't a prophetic word but I'm telling you anyone that I know who's anyone can seize indicators and right now things are overpriced and we're overconfident in our cash flow. Trust God, trust God, pray about your purchases Recently, we took a loan out to renovate and get ahead of things. We we didn't wanna wait a few years so that we could renovate this sanctuary, so we took an equity line on the building, and we did everything you see here literally this year, but by December of this year, that entire loan will be completely paid off because we don't want to carry that debt. We have a great board that is great with responsibility, and I'm very grateful for them. For those of you that are in here, this morning in first service, I wanna say thank you. I don't want us hanging over a million dollar debt and the economy turns. And that's why I wanna to talk to you about what I consider to be one of the greatest comebacks in scripture, that I think that we could, we could grab onto some of this for our own lives. And so if you'll just pray with me one more time, I'm gonna ask God to help me have the right words as we talk here this morning on what I want to call you a series on the comeback. Lord, in the name of Jesus, Father, I pray that you would not put a fire in me, but you would have put a fire in your word that would spread across this room and across those that we love that are connected to us, that we would know that things might become beyond hope in our life, difficulties might seem beyond recovery, but it's never beyond you. And you're always waiting to inspire us to have a comeback if we'll just trust and believe you. And we thank you for your word that gives us example after example of it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you grab uh, the handout that you have here this morning, if you don't have one, I'm sure if you wave your hand, the ushers will get it to you. And if you just want to listen, that's totally fine too. But there's a timeline that's on this that's really helpful. On that timeline, it shows you King Solomon, way, way back in 970 BC, and it goes all the way to Jesus being born and being crucified and resurrecting. And between that huge, huge, huge span of time, in the middle of it is what we call the exile. It's the greatest lost fight in the history of the Bible. The entire country of Israel, the entire nation of Israel... God kept warning his people, saying, I need to be Lord of everything or I'm Lord of nothing. You need to stop putting things before me and you need to put me first. You need to stop worshiping stuff, things, and holding on to things for security or thinking that things are safe and you need to trust me to be the God that keeps you safe. You need to stop working your angle and say, I'll have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of church and a little bit of this that and the other thing and think that that actually works and so he would send his prophets and there's a very powerful verse at the end of the book of chronicles you see after Solomon was king his son split the entire nation in two and the story was a divorce of a nation ever since everything was cut in half and the north went sour first and sooner or later the south went sour and finally God said that's it I'm done if you will not listen to my love and you will not listen to my words, you will listen to my discipline. And he rose up the Babylonian army to come in. Jeremiah was in the streets with tears pouring down his face saying, God is going to judge us if we don't turn to him. God is going to, and then finally halfway through Jeremiah's message, he said, we are going away to captivity. When the armies come, trust God. When the, when the soldiers come, trust God. He was, he was treated as a treasoner. He was treated He was treated and, and humiliated and he would tell his word. It wasn't like he was saying something that was popular and applauded. He was saying something that everyone was like, you better be quiet or we're going to kill you. And in fact, at the end of his ministry, the last of his days, when the armies finally came, he was, he was kidnapped by a group of priests, dragged down to, to Egypt where they were fleeing for their lives and they eventually murdered him. That was his reward for being faithful to God's word. And God says it to his children like this. In 2 Chronicles 36, this is how the book of Chronicles ends. The stories of the kings of Israel, when that chapter will be closed forever. He says this, the Lord, he persistently, uh, persistently to them by his messengers was spoken. He had compassion, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his word and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. You see, God is long-suffering, but he's not eternal suffering. And God even has a moment where he realizes that it will not be his patience and his love that gets a hold of your life. And I've learned something about Jesus that is really profound. He cares about me so much that he's willing to hurt me if it means it will help me. The entire Old Testament Bears that out over and over again. God loves me, he has good things for my life, but if as we preached last week, I'm not yielding to God, I'm not surrendering to him, and I'm walking against the grain of his kingdom, and I'm not saying, thy will be done, I'm saying, my will be done. Sooner or later, God will lovingly come after me, he'll speak to me, he'll send people into my life, he'll do, and if I just continue to be tone deaf to it, they'll reach a moment where I, there is no remedy, and God says, if you will not listen to my love, you will listen to my spanking. And that's what he did. He sent in the Babylonians disaster hit Jeremiah the same prophet or Ezekiel the same prophet had a vision in in chapter 10 and he saw in Jerusalem he's sharing this he's one of the people that that is taken away to Babylon which is like Iraq So he goes from Israel all the way to Iraq, the nation of Babylon, he's chained up, he's walking, he's probably dying of thirst, he's probably dying of hunger and they throw them all down at a river and they all set up squatter camps all over the place and some people in our church here know what it is like in Liberia and in other countries to have to live in a refugee camp. You know exactly what that picture is. Ezekiel would look at you and say, I know that, I get that. And as he's in there, God gives him a vision and he sees the glory of God like the cloud over the temple and it's as if it pulls back over the threshold from the holy of holies to the threat to the altar to the threshold to the mountain and it drifts off and it goes to babylon and god says you need to go with the flow because i'm not lo- i'm no longer the cloud is no longer resting on jerusalem the favor is no longer on jerusalem it's going to be in babylon and anyone who resists my chastisement It'll be worse for you. Yield to God. That's literally what Jeremiah's message was and Ezekiel's message and Daniel's message. All of these prophets. And while they're there, before they go, Jeremiah, in his prophecies, he begins to throw out a prophetic message. The first thing I want you to hear about a comeback is this. Is that Comebacks are prophetic. Listen, God and his plan for your life is not that you would be the tail, but you would be the head. God's plan for your life is not that you would be defeated, but you would be successful. And that only happens when we are yielded to his will. When we give ourselves to his direction Good things happen in our life. Now, bad things happen to good people, but here's the thing. The story, for those of you, there are some of you in this church, you have, you have served God faithfully and you have suffered. My friend Wally Mungandal, that was here back in October served Jesus faithfully in Saudi Arabia and kept being beaten within an in each of his life. He suffered for the gospel. In fact, in the book of Revelation, forget about studying end-time prophecies and all that, just for the word for you, Jesus is coming back soon. He is going to take back, God looks at the universe and he says, mine. And he didn't send his son so that he could all of a sudden bite his nails and say, I don't know if I can get control of this. No, God, the Bible says, is long patient, that none should perish, but all would come to him. So God is patiently trying to do it, but a captivity is coming. And this time it's not the Babylonians, it's Jesus on a white horse with his angels, and he is going to look at everything in this universe and say, it's no longer yours. It's mine. I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. But this in-between time was so demoralizing. I remember my grandfather telling a story about how there was a pound of meat that was on sale for like 20 cents. Like five pounds of meat, sorry. Five pounds of meat that was on sale for 20 cents. That would have been like like going to the grocery store, handing them a a buck and getting about 50 pounds of steak. And they turned that house inside out and upside down. They They couldn't find it. Nobody had it. It was a low time in our country, but I've had some pretty low times in my life as well. And you know that for your own life too. You've had some moments where everything's taken away from you in the snap of a finger, or something you've desired your whole life has denied you, or somebody brought something upon you or something came upon you and you didn't choose it and you didn't ask for it, but it just hit you. And let me tell you what, comebacks are prophetic you may be down but you are not out from this fight of this thing called faith and that's why the bible says fight the good fight of faith because God believes in comebacks and he prophesies this he says this through our first passage here in Ezra chapter one let me read one through three for you it says this if you want to turn there you can if you want to look it in your bible you can But Ezra, chapter 1, the books of Ezra and the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel are the prophets that begin to prophesy before and during this war that takes the entire nation away. And then while they're in captivity, Daniel is the one that's in the captivity, in in the court of the king, and his whole book is being written as... Kings are coming and going. He survives the Babylonian. He survives the Babylonian captivity. He survives the Babylonian rule. He survives when the Persians defeat the Babylonians, and then he comes into the court of those kings. Kings came and kings went, but Daniel stayed there. What an incredible prophet! And in that time, the book of Esther is written, as she's under the Persian king. And in that time. You have the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's in this moment the comeback begins. Because it was a prophetic comeback. Listen to this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, what happens is is Babylon or Iraq is defeated by Iran in the ancient world. Iraq and Iran. Iran defeats Iraq, takes over the Persians, defeat the Babylonians, and they are the new rulers of the world. And in that time it says this, the word of the Lord by the mouth of, look at that, Jeremiah, might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and he put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. This is comeback language right here. Rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now notice this. When he makes this proclamation, he is not saying, God is my God. Yahweh is my God. No, he talks about him, the God of Judah, the God in Jerusalem, but something happens where God begins to use this man to begin and ha- to have his power begin to change things. Let me tell you something: this church is not a political church; we are not here to promote a political agenda, and you need to vote your conscience and your convictions and all those kind of things but i 'll tell you something: God uses people in power and positions to accomplish. His tasks, and we are called to pray for those in leadership. And if you hate the president that's in office now, or you hated the previous president, can I tell you something? First of all, as a believer, it is inappropriate for you to hate those people. It is appropriate for you to pray for those people because God put them in those positions, and whether they yield to His will or not, there are moments where God can use that person to accomplish His will. And here's Cyrus, king of Persia. This man is, if you if you've ever seen the movie 300, he, he's that guy he's that guy but he's he's his great he's grandfather he is that that evil wicked warmongering kind of person but then all of a sudden God just comes up to him like a Jedi and says you need to send my people back to Jerusalem and he's like we need to say you ever do that wives you do this all the time you put an idea in our head and then we think it's ours and we're like we're going to do this and you're like that's awesome and the whole time you're like that was my idea I did that but that's what God did with this man why did he do that what is this thing about Jeremiah? It's actually found in Jeremiah 25. And everything we talk about for the next several weeks, this is the historical platform that it takes place on. All of this background info. Look at this, Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. "The whole the land shall be a ruin and a waste." He's talking about Jerusalem, And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years then after 70 years are complete, I will punish the king of Babylon. Now here's the crazy thing, right? <laughs> what, what is the Bible? Is it, is it just, did, did a bunch of people just make up a bunch of stories and then just write them down? Is it us telling the story through our own angle But that, like all roads lead to heaven, just like all dogs go to heaven. By the way, not all dogs go to heaven. Not that dog that bit my arm. That's for sure. He ain't gonna be there. But like, but like, you know, there's a there's a religion around the world, universalism, which basically says we all get there. All paths lead to the same place. No, they don't. Jesus said this. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, no one gets to the Father except through me. You don't get to the Father unless you go through the cross and say. I am a sinner and you are a savior. I am wrong and you are right. Nobody gets to stand in the presence of God unless he kneels before the savior who died on the cross. And believe me, let me tell you what, I would love to actually put a tomb over there because the story here talks about the defeat and the suffering. The resurrection is what the entire early church talked about over and over again. He's the risen Lord. And if it only ended at the cross, there were thousands of people Thousands of people that died on the cross. In fact, one time there were up to 2,000 of them on the roads entering Jerusalem. The difference is, is that he was the king of kings. He was the Lord of lords. And what they thought was a defeat to him and hell was applauding and saying, we've won and it's all over. Three days later, Jesus comes out of the tomb and he goes, "Pooh, he goes, I'm back. This is my comeback. You can't keep me down. And he left every sin and every shame and disgrace that ever was, that was and ever will be done Forgiven in that tomb by conquering death on that cross. But you don't get to the Father except through Jesus. And if you're here today and you're trying to figure out religion and you're trying to figure out God, I'm telling you what, your search ended at Jesus. You need to open up the book of John and start reading and rereading it and say, God, talk to me. Speak to me. Who are you really? Who are you? He's Lord. Why why this prophecy from Daniel, like or from, from Jeremiah? You see, there are about like there are about a hundred years to play with between when Jeremiah started opening his big mouth to when Daniel and Cyrus, king of Persia, what you read there in, in chapter one of, of Ezra, ever happened. You know what? You could just dismiss the book the Bible real easy as another moral code and just say, ah, that's more rules for my life. They're just suggestions. They're just kind of like guidelines, you know, golden rule. No, they're not. God is an absolute God. There is no wiggle room. That's why the Ten Commandments are written in you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Man, he doesn't even let me off the hook when I see something that I want it. Well, that's not what it means. It means I want something that somebody else has, and I'm willing to take it from them. You shall not steal. Paperclip? Is there a gradation to it? You shall not kill. You know what? That's premeditated, cold blooded murder, not self defense. That's literally the translation of the Hebrew word ratzah. But God has a code, God has a standard. But here's where it separates it from every other book it comes down to prophecy. Let me give it to you this way if we were just to take the prophecies of Jesus, and this comes from Josh McDowell a book called Evidence It Demands a Verdict. If you've never read it or you, More Than a Carpenter is a great book. If you're wondering if Jesus is really God, if he is really the only way, you need to look at it. He, it's incredible. Simple, tiny book, 75 pages. He said, do this if just 10 prophecies about Jesus that are written in the Old Testament long before he's ever born were fulfilled. That would be the equivalent of putting Helen Keller in a helicopter who can neither hear nor see flying her to the state of Texas in three feet deep of quarters and taking one quarter and putting an X on it and burying it deep somewhere in the state and ask, and taking her, randomly flying her anywhere in the state when she starts saying this, like here, landing. She gets out of the helicopter. She reaches into the pile. And in one shot and in one chance, she pulls out that quarter. Just ten prophecies. That's just a picture to put to it. It's like something or something to the hundredth power. It's this ridiculous kind of thing. And you could be dismissive to the Bible because you don't like what it says. You could be dismissive about the Bible and cherry pick what you like. You can do that, but that's not that That doesn't exempt us from standing before a holy God and having to give an account of who we were, what we did. You know what terrifies me? The Bible says it will give an account of every word that we said, every idle word. I'm apologizing to you in advance on how long I'm going to hold up the line when I'm in there because I got a lot of sorrows to say and this is why Jesus is so amazing because if you submit and you yield to him he's he looks at us and he says done this is covered nothing to talk about now he doesn't forget but he forgives that's what makes it more powerful that was actually something we talked about with spouses yesterday you don't have a right to hold on to unforgiveness and bitterness towards your spouse that's sin And you don't have to forget it because you don't forget what they did wrong. But what's really powerful is where you look somebody in the eye and you say to them, I forgive you. That's what Jesus does to us. He knows what we did. He remembers what we did. And then he says to us, I forgive you. And the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, which never meet each other, by the way. So have I cast your sins. But he remembers throwing them. He is such a good God. But if you were to just be so dismissive, with the prophecy aspect of this man you can't the, the the likelihood of this stuff to happen is just crazy in fact go back another 75 years before even jeremiah showed up on the scene and isaiah says this to who says of cyrus he is my shepherd he shall fulfill my purpose flink think of this Over a hundred plus years before King Cyrus of Persia ever would say what he did in Ezra chapter one, freeing the Jews, sending them back to Jerusalem, telling them to rebuild the temple, saying your comeback has come. It's time to get back. Before he ever did it, Isaiah mentions him by name through the Holy Spirit. He mentions him by name. He continues and he says this, thus says the Lord to his anointed. You know what the word anointed means by the way? Messiah. Messiah in Hebrew. You know what an anointed one is? man. That person, Jesus, is the ultimate anointed one. And he did something that nobody else could do. But you, my friend, God wants to anoint you to do things for him. Because he wants to work through you. That's why you need to yield to him. And when God anoints you, he calls you my anointed one. The one who is going to save through me. Only one person can save us from our sins. And Jesus did for us what nobody ever born or ever will be born could do but God all of a sudden goes to a pagan king and says I'm going to anoint this guy I wonder if God would have done it sooner if his people were praying for those in leadership over them he says this I call you by your name I know I I name you though you do not know me that's just mind-blowing to me you know what that tells me Comebacks are prophetic. Here's How do we put this into our life? Can I tell you something? You might be in a difficult season and if you're not, you're headed to one. That's just life, it rains on the just and the unjust. In order to hit the peak, you gotta travel through the valley. In order to celebrate the rain, you gotta deal with the mud. That's just life, bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. It's just life. In the end, God is going to sort it out at the judgment seat of Christ and he's going to help me realize where I thought I was right and I was wrong and my wife was right and I was wrong and I'm going to get that all straightened out in that day. But but as that time comes, here's the thing. God looked into the future when Jesus was on the cross and he looked at the captivity of your sin and he looked at at the immorality of of your fornication and your addiction and your foul mouth and your thief and your, your covetousness and your idolatry and all of the things that you, of your disrespect of your parents. Man, let me tell you what, that alone, I'm toast. If I have to stand before God on my own merits, you just come to honor your mother and father, it's all done. I'm, I'm totally gone. I'm never making it. You never could make it. You never did. And sometimes God says, you know what, if you won't listen to my, my love and my words, then I will allow some things to come into your life to help get your attention. How is it and why is it that our closest moments to God are in our most painful hours it's because sometimes we just get out of our idolatry and our stubbornness and our self-centeredness and God gets our attention and we realize oh my goodness I really do need God And you know what I don't want to be that person that's near to God when I'm low and, and and not near to him when things are going good for me I want to continue to walk before him and if he can help me look at what God did for me in my my difficult hour what can he do with me in my great moments what good can he do through you and through me but here's the thing before your difficulty ever came before your problem ever faced you and you faced it there was Jesus on the cross dying for you and not that we loved him first but that he loved us that's how we know what love is and he looks at you and he says this greater am I greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world listen you're never going to be strong enough you're never you can be confident you can be overconfident you can think you've got this but he never intended you to have it all he wants to work through you he wants his power to be in you he wants you to walk holy he wants you to be holy he wants you to be pure he wants you to walk straight in a crooked world stop playing games with him and yield to him this isn't a joke this isn't a game it's eternity and he's trying to get some of your attention here this morning But he looks into your future and this is what I love about God. He looked all the way back and named Cyrus by name, Jeremiah. He said, there's going to be a return, but just because it's prophetic doesn't mean that it's going to happen. Comebacks require prayer. What do you mean, Pastor Paul? My grandma prophesied over me once that I was going to be used greatly of God. I remember I was standing right here. I have every other Three months or so, I have somebody come up to me who is so far from God. It's so obvious, and yet they have this prophetic word that somebody said that was so clear. Prophecy, well, does it? You listen. The fulfill gets fulfilled if you are in the yield. You know how many things in your life are never going to happen because you're not yielding to Him. And people come up and be like, my grandma prophesied over me and said that. And I said, yup. And I said, and that thing's going to be worthless unless you yield and you give yourself to God and you surrender to him and you submit to him. Ooh, it's a dirty word, is it? Or has our culture made it dirty? Somebody who loves you with his arms open wide will take you back, sees you at your worst moment and still thinks the best of you. Why wouldn't you want to submit to somebody like that? Why wouldn't you want to obey and trust? You know, we hear obey and we hear all those bad things in our heart and our life. God says, no, yield. Daniel says it like this. Daniel perceived from the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, namely 70 years, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas with mercy and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. You know what Daniel realized? There was, a, there was a hope, there was a possibility of a comeback and the only way that it was gonna happen is if he prayed. Why would you not want to pause and talk to somebody who holds your hope? Why would you not want to read about somebody who loves and cares for you? I mean, if God was this abusive relationship you bet. But he's not. And he invites us. And here's the thing. He never violates your free will. You've got to choose him. And I think sometimes the choosing is the hard part because I think we have a... I don't think I would want to talk to, pray to, or read about the God that you have in your head and heart. Because he's a scowling father that just takes off on you, humiliates you, Yells at you when you need somebody to listen. He's not that guy. Why would you not want to? Why would you not want the help? Why would you not trust? Why would you not listen? Why would you not talk to somebody like that? I think it makes yielding to him so much easier. But Daniel, he didn't say, my grandma, my great-grandfather Jeremiah prophesied a prophecy he said this thing isn't going to happen unless we start yielding and if you read his prayer in Daniel chapter 9 it's amazing that guy was so pure the only way that they could get something against him was that he was praying three times a day that's how he got arrested and thrown in the lion's den because he was praying that was the only thing they could find to convict him on that's integrity that's character and he said oh god this is not going to happen and when you read his prayer He's not confessing his sins, he's confessing everybody's sins. We are ashamed, Lord, to, to us belongs shame and disgrace, but to you is glory and majesty. And he doesn't appeal to God's word and says, "You said this, you fulfill your word as you promised." Like so many gospels out there are preaching today like you can get in God's face and hold him with an arm twist to a covenant and make him, you know, say, "Oh, that's right. Okay. Okay, I'll listen to you." No. He humbles himself and he says, "We deserve this." We deserve to be ignored. But oh God, I appeal to your mercy and your grace. Why not come to him like that? Stop looking at God like he's the father that beat you or bailed on you. And start seeing him for who he is. a person that loves you. He's not that man. He's that man. Don't you forget it. Don't you confuse it. And he's not in heaven saying, You got a few seconds to change this, or so I'm gonna beat your life with difficulty. And stop going around and saying, I knew it. That's what following you means. That's it. No. Stop blaming him. Start owning your stuff. You know what the biggest difficulty? Forget generation millennials. Forget that Xers, boomers. You all got this problem. It's called the sin problem. It's human nature. We don't own our junk. Whenever somebody comes up to me and they try to say, uh, uh, or or when I say to people, I do this all the time to people as well, I'll say, listen, hey, I want to apologize. And all the time people will be like, oh, 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 wait, hey, no, 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 no apology needed. No apology needed. Nope, you do need to hear me apologize because I need to because I was wrong. I was sinful. Please forgive me. Sometimes we say, no, 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 because then if you have to listen to that, if you can blow that off now you can hold on to your bitterness and your unforgiveness and your lack of trust and we do that with God it's all good or we just kind of say you know what just watch over me I'm at church Lord help me he wants us to yield to him in prayer that's why it starts like this the most famous verse on prayer if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their sins and their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Then I will forgive their sin. Then I will hear their land. If, if, then, then, it's conditional. We opened up this church for a month of prayer and it was beautiful to see so many of you come out on a Saturday. And I understand you all have jobs, but I realized something, we need to pray as a church. So once a month, starting the first Sunday in March, every, or first Saturday in March, every Saturday of the month, the first of the month, just one Saturday out of the, out of the entire month, we're going to pray from 9 to 10 again. Not the whole month, but this whole month we were here. Pastor Dylan, Pastor Caitlin, myself, Pastor D- Dylan's home with the flu. Pastor Caitlin is away grieving the loss of her grandmother. But every single day in the month, Tuesday and Thursday, they were here 6.30 to 7.30 praying praying with some of you that were here comebacks they require prayer they require you to call upon the one who can win the fight for you and be your champion you know what's amazing too though is it's not only that it requires prayer but it also a comeback requires your you doing your part look at this in Ezra chapter 1 verses 2 through 3 In the the verse that we read at the beginning. The Lord the God of heaven has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth. And has charged me to build for him a house in Jerusalem. This guy's really egocentrical. But then whoever is among you of all his people. May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah. And rebuild the house of the Lord. Imagine if Jeremiah prophesied it. Cyrus decreed it. Daniel prayed about it and nobody got off their seat and did it. When that was going on, there was a guy named Ezra who remained faithful to God's word. And he said, I need to go back to Jerusalem because the people need to hear exactly. And this is why we need to be in the word and know what God requires of them. I'm going, I'm leaving here and we're going to Jerusalem. There was a guy, Nehemiah, who kept giving the cup to the king. He was a slave filling, he was the water boy of these Persian kings. And then while he was there, he said, I got to go back to Jerusalem. I need to build up the walls. We need to strengthen his defenses. So he went and he became a bricklayer. A teacher went and he did teaching. A governor went, Zerubbabel, and he went and governed. A priest named Joshua went and he priested the thing and everybody came back and then they began to put the altar together and then in Nehemiah's day they began to build the wall and it says that every man carried a sword in one hand and the trawl in the other and everybody rolled up their sleeve and let me tell you something about this church and about this thing called the kingdom of God it doesn't work without you. Every single one of us, just like what we talked about recently where it says with burden bearers, right? Let each man bear his own burden. You've got a backpack, but, but it says bear one another's burdens. You need to give a hand to something. You know what we need in this church desperately? We need ushers. Ron is going to go bald on us because we don't have ushers. You know what we need in this church? We need people to do security. We need people to deacon to say, I'll do that ministry. I'll step up. I'll do that. But there are so many people who are the same people saying, do it, do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Do it. I'll do it. And the whole time, God is giving us a promise. Listen, this church is a story of a return. God is returning to this place in his presence, in his power. And part of that was to restore the temple. And that's exactly what Haggai prophesies about. That's exactly about restoring holiness. That's exactly what Zechariah talks about. And this whole thing. For God to do a comeback in your life, you've got to get up from the punch. You need to shake yourself off. You need to put the gloves back together and jump back in the fight and step in and do your part. It doesn't work if you just stay on the ground from the beating. God never intended you to stay on the be- uh, uh, down from the beating. And yeah, it hurt. It was difficult. It was hard for the Patriots not to be in the Super Bowl this year. Let's just pause for a moment on that. <laughs> I just, I, you know, 49ers, just, just throwing it out there, that's all. But it's one thing to sit in the stadium and cheer on the players, it's another thing to get into the game. Incredible story. Guy, Vince Papali, back in the 70s, he was a nobody playing football in the streets. And the Jets had such a terrible, the uh, the Eagles had such a terrible losing streak, and it's an uh, invincible is this movie that's out on it. That he just said, I'm going to jump in the game. I'm going to totally do this, and I'm going to I'm going to see what happens. He ended up getting picked, and he ended up playing in uh, in the game. He ended up playing in the Super Bowl, and he he just did an inc- incredible play. And his play was short, but but I'm telling you what, he jumped in the game. And some of us, we need to move from the stadium and jump in this game for the comeback to happen. God's saying, I didn't, I didn't let this happen to keep you down, but I brought it to bring you back so that you could make a comeback, and, and I want to get you in there, and you're never really going to win with God unless you risk something and do something in this life. God wants you to have a comeback, but you, Pastor Paul, you don't understand, it was hard, it was difficult, it hurt. You're asking me to do something, but I just can't do it. You don't understand how busy I am. You don't understand uh, how hard it is to pray, how hard it is to... Man, those things are privileges if you've approached God from the right angle. But if you're going to really have a comeback in your life, it requires you take the punch. I don't know if any of you have ever sparred, done boxing or martial arts it's one thing to watch it it's another thing to do it I've done this on and off for years I know I look like a poster child for Dunkin Donuts but I did this for years and man it is brutalizing when you've got somebody pounding you and knocks you to the ground it's demoralizing and you wonder how in the world can I get back up well here's what happens as soon as these people finally say I'm going to do my part And they go to Jerusalem. No sooner do they get there and an enemy rises up against them. And if you stand up and you step into saying, God, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to change this. I'm coming back. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to read. I'm going to, I'm not only going to read and worship you with all my ear and heart and mind. I'm not only going to talk to you and worship and worship you and sing to you, but I'm going to do, I don't know what I can do. I can't do much, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to get there. They get back there and it says that the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. And made them afraid to build. You think that hell is going to applaud your efforts to draw near to God? No, they're just clapping every decision that you make to choose the opposite. Hell is in there. Tony said this yesterday in our marriage gathering. The devil is looking at your marriage. I don't ever want the devil to be able to amen my marriage. Or my life. I want God to be able to say amen. I want people to look at it and say amen. And I'm not telling you that I'm perfect or that you're perfect. We get that. But we want to hear God say, get up. It's like he's the coach. You've been knocked down. And man, if you've ever been hit hard enough where you can hear a six count or an eight count or a ten count, you don't want to get back up. You can't even. You're delirious. And the coach is there saying, get up. Get up! All the people that betted money on you are going, Get up! I'm going to lose! Get up! In the boxing game. But heaven and the angels are saying, Get up! It's not over! You can make a comeback. Just because you've been hit down doesn't mean you need to stay down. But the enemy comes in and he tries to make you afraid. Or he tries to lie to you and say it's not going to happen. Or he sends discouragement in. Of course, of course when you started doing the right thing, wrong things happen. Of course! You know what, this week I got a punch, this month our car was stolen. I said, praise God, we've got insurance. I found out I accidentally left the full coverage on it. And they said, here's money to buy the next car. We said, praise God. And then all of a sudden, 5,000 miles later, $7,000 later, 5,000 miles down the road, my engine seizes and we take it to the mechanic and they say, your car's gone, along with the $7,000. I mean, gosh, I just got my car stolen. And then on top of that, I realized my car is dead. And you know what? I realized that joy is not circumstantial. Joy is a choice. And you know what? Each step I've been saying, God, you are faithful. Lord, you're gonna work this out. God, you're good even when the situation isn't. And then we got the money and we're like, okay, we're gonna get a car. And then another discouraging thing happens. My engine seizes. And you know what? The other day I found out there's a recall on the engine. And this Thursday, they're gonna look at it. And of course, no dealership wants to pay to repair something and they're already using words to kind of say that they don't have to change the engine and that the previous owner was the one that caused it to seize and all that. Would you please pray for my wife and I? But here's the thing. I'm getting discouraged. I'm getting punched. Of course, because I'm trying to do the right thing with my life. I'm trying to do the right thing for God. I'm trying to do the right thing for my family. You think that for a second that I have to give up or at that moment you just hit me and hit me and i just like, okay, I'll submit to you. No! When it comes to a bully, get up! Throw your best punch! Get it in there! Swing away! But that's not what they did. That's not what they did. Work of the house of God that's in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Sometimes we get so discouraged we just give up, never give up, never quit, never surrender. Don't stay on that mat. I know what that feels like. Your wife has brain cancer. Great Lord, you're going to take her from me? No, Lord, I trust you. You'll never have children, Diana. Oh, God, you're faithful. Prophet of God comes up to my wife, puts her hand on her belly, and says to her, I feel like God wants to bless your children. Two hours after she was told she'd never have them. I know, what it's, I know what it's like to take a punch. God wants you to take it on the chin. You thought this was going to be easy? You thought that hell was just going to let you walk in there? No, never. But greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. I'm going to have to do this very quickly because it's locked up. Comebacks require you take the punch. Take the hit, but don't stay down. Don't stay down in fear. Don't stay down in pain. Don't think that that's the end. It is, you know what a champion is? The person that got up one more time than the other person. That's what a champion is. My grandfather, when he bought that and he lost it, he went back. Years later, he had a picture of him taken in that place. It had gone through so many different other owners. That was the last time in one of the few pictures we have of the place. But when he was running it, in that all of the boxers from Madison Square Garden would come in there, this is actually a signed picture from one of them, his name's Jack Dempsey, but literally six blocks away from my grandfather's place lived another guy during the Great Depression that my grandfather went through. His name was James T. Braddock. James Braddock, it was said of this, one of the authors said this, a, 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 a reporter, he said, in all the history of boxing game, you will find no human interest story to compare with the life narrative of Braddock. There's a picture of him signed. These guys would come in, and here's the thing. And Braddock was a, an incredible boxer, and he was off to a good start, but he broke his hand, and he was fighting injured, and so he wasn't able to give his all, and they took away his license to box, and then the Great Depression hit. People were taking their children, they called it farming out your kids, where you would let them grow in somebody else's house because you couldn't keep them in a home where you couldn't afford to pay the heating bill. You couldn't afford to keep the house and the rent, so you sent one over this person's house, two over that person's house, and that's why people, men, were moving into uh, Hooverville in these in these shacks, because nobody could afford to pay mortgages or rent or anything, and they just farmed their kids out. And James T. Braddock, in the lowest moment of his life after his his... Licensing uh, for boxing was taken away from him. He farms out his kids and has to beg from the men that got rich off of him. I want you to watch this brief clip. We're just gonna be a few minutes over, but I want you to see this story, and you can the turn thing The thing
1: is, I can't, afford to, uh, I can't afford to pay the heat. I've had to farm out my kids. You know, I sold everything I got that anybody would buy. I went on public assistance. I signed on at the relief office. They gave me $19. I need another $18.38 so I can pay the bill and get the kids back. You know me well enough to know if I had anywhere else to go, I wouldn't be here. If you could help me through this time, I sure would be grateful. Sure, Jim. Sure. You know, I have the prettiest wife a man could wish for. Bob Johnson, Boston Globe. Two days ago, we ran a story about you giving
0: your uh, relief money back. Can you tell our readers why?
1: I believe uh, we live in a great country. A country that's great enough to help a man uh, financially when he's in trouble Uh, but lately i've had some good fortune and uh, i'm back in the black (laughs) Uh, i had a run of bad luck and uh this time around i know what i'm fighting for
0: oh yeah what's that
1: jimmy milk milk
0: Uh, They called him the Cinderella Man. They made a movie after him. Those are the only parts I can sanction from the movie. The rest of them, they have body mounts in there, but not too bad. He was after that fight, he became, after one fight, contender for the heavyweight champion of the world. His name was Bear. And Bear had already killed two men in the ring with one punch. You can see here from the picture how outmatched he was. He was totally out of his league. And yet the more that that man pounded him, the more he pictured his kids on the street, his wife on the street, his shack that he was living in. And that man went from being the most down and out has been to becoming the champion of the hearts of an entire country through one of the lowest moments it had ever experienced. Braddock, after this undeniably won without contest, The championship the heavyweight championship of the world he made the greatest comeback I don't know where you're really at I mean you can say all the right words to me praise the Lord hallelujah lift your hands, sing the songs of passion but that don't mean that you're down that doesn't mean that you're taking a beating that doesn't mean that people have hurt you or choices you have made have trapped you I'm telling you get up and fight Because God has prophesied over your life, greater is he that's in me, that's in the world. And he says it like this. He says, take heart. I've overcome the world. The fight's not over. Get up, swing, get back in there. Swing through prayer. Swing through holiness. Swing through doing your part. Swing through showing up. Swing through trusting him. And know that it's not over until the 15th round. And no matter how hard you're hit, you keep your wits. And you keep saying God is good even when life isn't. That's true Christianity. That's the heart of a champion. And if we could stand across this room, I'm gonna invite you, if you want to, to take these home with you because of time. And at one moment, you'd pause tonight at the side of your bed, or when you're alone, or with your spouse, or with your kids. Take enough for your family, please. And you would go through this process and say, oh, God, you're the greatest champion. You took the greatest blow anyone ever could, and you got back. And that power lives in me. And that forgiveness lives in me. And that training and that coach, you're at the sidelines now, but it's your time and you're in the ring and it hurts. But I want you to know something. God has prophesied your comeback. And it comes through prayer. And it comes through you doing your part. But God wants you to win. But he can't swing for you. He can't stand for you. But he can give you the strength and the courage. Get up. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus here this morning that you would give us the strength to fight the good fight of faith, to not swing in the wind, to fight as one who to win, and having done all these things, to stand in the armor of God. I pray for, Lord, you to give people a knowledge to know that the greatest strength and power and person in the universe is not against them. You're not against them. You're for us and you want us to win, but we need to fight our fight. You already fought the one that we can. Lord, now it's our part, but you say at the end of the book, we win. We win if we'll hang in the 15 rounds. Lord, I pray that there would be no one in this church, no one watching online, nobody around the, what they call this place their home that would throw in the towel. But they'd ramp up their game, not to survive, but to secure a championship. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. As we close here, the worship team is going to play. Some of you might need to get your children. You're welcome to do that, but none of you have to go. But if you do, do so quiet. Do it respectfully. Get up. Swing. God loves you, and he's for you. Amen? you champions. Trust him. God bless you.